Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. The Montague Street Bridge in South Melbourne is one of the most infamous in the city for crashes with a clearance of just three metres. It's pretty much the lowest bridge on the road network and trucks, buses, camper vans and other slightly higher than normal vehicles hit it regularly. Some get jammed. And going by the website, um, this is the name of the website, how many days since Montague Street Bridge has been hit.com? It's been 11 days since someone hit the bridge and for the record it was a ute with a load of glass on the back and the caption for the photo on the Montague Street Bridge Twitter feed was I'll bet he's shattered. Um, Why talk about this bridge now? Well we're in a double election year and um, it is very unlikely that this issue will be part of any transport or infrastructure election promises and also Dave Nichols is an urban planning academic with a focus on history and after a decade on this program Dave um, we've picked your brains on all manner of things but we've never asked you about the Montague Oh, are you bridge. scraping the bottom of the barrel? Yeah, <laughs> that's what we're doing. But very intrigued about whether you have any relationship with it whatsoever. Thanks for asking me about the Montague Street Bridge, and uh, it's great to be on Triple M. Um, <laughs> look, I think that um, there's a few things. I did a little search in um, in the newspaper, you know, in Trove, actually. I think it was Trove, or maybe it was in The Age, um, for Montague Street Bridge, and I found very little historically before, uh, you know, 1960 or so. Um, But what I did find was related to floods. So that part of Melbourne is extremely low and it is prone to flooding. And there is, uh, there were stories about cars getting washed away in exactly that spot, which is why the road was raised in, I think, the 1930s. So it was a low bridge in the first place, I think, but the road was uh, raised quite substantially, I think, in the 1930s. The bridge itself dates from 1914, so it's over 100 years old. It's been there all that time, but it's actually... It's a high road, not a low bridge. That's that's exactly Mm. right, Dylan, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, that's, that's the problem, or... So That's people blame the, the bridge, but they should be blaming the road. Is that <laughs> no, what you're right. saying, yeah. Dylan? It's a matter well, of perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a that's a big part of it. But yeah, you will um, you will notice anybody who's um, got 13 minutes to spare, I recommend have a look at. There's a YouTube video, but there's a guy called Julian O'Shea who does videos under the under the title Unknown Melbourne. Um, he's like 10 percent irritating, 90 percent informative, and. Uh, Actually, my my ratio is different, but you know, I, I can relate anyway. But um, we have a we have a text line now that triple triple our listeners could rate your um <laughs> irritatingness. Okay, yeah. well, don't tell me about that. No, and no, don't we tell won't. Me the, we won't. The we're not encouraging you. Actually, yeah. no, keep Good. going. Keep going. So, with um, uh, so he he talks about like he actually he he was doing a video on the bridge when a and a truck behind him drove into the like we don't actually see it happen but we see the results he was actually there when a uh, when a truck it wasn't a terrible accident it wasn't one of those ha ha when in a truck came out of convertible kind of uh, things it was a um the the driver actually managed to extract themselves from the from under the bridge but nevertheless it's clearly it's a frequent occurrence uh as we all know and um i look i'm I, I am actually i do think it's an interesting phenomenon kind of the response and um you know i think that there's a there's a real 
you know, this website, for instance, um, with the frog, why the frog with boxing gloves? I don't, I don't know. Um, how many days since Montague Street Bridge has been hit? There's a, there's a certain amount of, um, I don't know, Schadenfreude about this, which I, I don't quite get. Uh, as O'Shea says, and this was, this was the interesting thing that I hadn't really put two and two together. My feel, my initial thought was, well, it must be not only that the road was raised, um, but also that trucks must have got taller. And, you know, most of the time when people build bridges, they build them high enough for high trucks. But, um, I mean, maybe trucks have got taller. But as O'Shea says, uh, a lot of the time these these accidents happen with people driving hired trucks or, Mm. you know, they're just they're inexperienced in the vehicle. So it's not that they don't appreciate that the bridge is low. It's they don't appreciate how high their vehicle is. And that is, uh, to me, kind of the, the... the end of the story. But, but See why, you later. <laughs> why, why is the one constant here that like the, the bridge just can't be raised? Because so the road's been raised and trucks have got bigger and higher and that sort of thing. But why is it that after so many crashes, so many accidents, that it just seems we don't just raise the bridge to, you know... Well, I guess the, I think there it. was an economic decision made that, it, that it was better to invest a huge amount of money, a massive amount of money in those... Um, what are they called? Um, those rubber rubber things that are um, hanging over the... Like a warning sort yeah, of... So yeah. You drive through it and they whack the truck. They, they whack and you the know top that, of the yeah. truck and you, you go, oh, a bunch of seagulls must have died and fallen on top of my truck. I better, better drive out of here fast. Um, there's there's those and there's a huge amount of signs and and that was seen as, you know, I mean, in let's be fair, that is giving people a little bit of uh, mm. uh, an understanding of the situation if they care to notice what's around them. Um, it would, I, I don't know if it's a, if there's been cost... Uh, you know, I think it's a it's a one of those wicked problems. It's a we're just it's an I mean, old rail bridge, and you know, there's plenty of other ways to go. So maybe maybe people, you know, as we often say when our students make mistakes, you know, can we turn this into an educative uh, well, I suppose scenario. Just given that there's been sky rails built all over the city, it, I just find it interesting that for some reason this one location that's got so much coverage um, yeah. and almost, you know, it's kind of iconic status that it, mm. it hasn't been addressed. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Too hard. <laughs> Too hard basket. <laughs> I think you'd have to raise a lot of rail line yeah. to um, to account for, you know. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying people's stupidity, but um, maybe maybe the people who drive down that road should just be a little more aware of their surroundings <laughs> and not be so blithely confident that wherever they go, they're allowed to go and they can go with it with impunity. Yeah, it's really interesting that idea that you know the the kind of the user approach because there's a lot more users than bridges so on one hand the logic is oh we should actually address the thing they're hitting rather than think we're going to educate all users borrowing a truck to move a couch Um, but that's the kind of situation that everybody and I was looking at the glass truck that went under and it's got quite a skinny top you know how Mm. so it probably didn't hit one of those dangly things it probably went right right through the middle of it so they wouldn't have got the warning and then you go um Oh, and they did. They weren't that much higher than three meters. I reckon yeah. it just it must have been like yeah. a smidge. Wouldn't take um, much. A would smidge. It? Yeah, maybe they pumped the tires up too high that morning or yeah, something exactly, like that. Exactly. But I mean, um, there are signs everywhere saying yeah. it's a low bridge. So you know, I mean, I, I I don't know. I sort of I sympathise with the people who have these accidents. I sort of feel like you know I don't I see. Don't want to make it about me, but you know I was educated at the time between the changeover from imperial measure to metric. That's when that was my 
my primary school. So I learnt a whole lot of metric, uh, sorry, a whole lot of imperial measures. And then one day they said, no, actually, that's wrong. We're going metric. So I've never had a, I've never had any kind of capacity for spatial. You know, I, I can't, I can't guesstimate the height of anything. I don't even know, you know, the three metres, sure. I don't know. I don't it's even just, know how high that is. It's often just the last thing you're thinking about when you've hired a moving van or something. Oh, God, it's, so much I was going on. Really you're not fraught. thinking, gee, I hope the bridges are high enough. Driving those things, you know, uh, yeah, it's really... I mean, I've, I've driven some big vehicles in my time and I, I hope never to do it again. I find it really, really, um, really distressing to do. Mm. So, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we're, we're now, like, as I said, we're in this sort of, you know, election period, et cetera. These sorts of very local things, particularly in Victoria, you know, look, it's just going to persist. That bridge is going to be where it is. Um, I'd love someone to ask Scott Morrison what he's going to do about that. What are you going to do about that? Yeah, he might think it's like a football team or something. Yeah, well, I, no. <laughs> he, he won't think. He'll he'll just yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, but this idea that things can persist and become jokes, like I mean, the the mm. big joke coming out of lockdown, and look, even I laughed at it. Was it took less? I think it was five days yeah. before mm. someone got jammed under that bridge, and the response from most people was. Melbourne's back, you know, and because there had been sort of quite a long time between bridge collisions because Mm. of the lockdowns and Mm. people weren't travelling around the city very much. And so I just think, you know, maybe we need this bridge. Maybe it's something that we find amusing as a community. But, um, yeah. I I think there's also, though, I think there's something a little bit bit smug about it. Like it's a bit – it's a – like – Nobody, anybody could be in that situation, to be, to be honest. Well, obviously, people who don't drive, you know, I know they're, they're very clever. But, you know, the people who do drive and who might, you know, in an instant um, be hiring some vehicle or whatever, or people who, you know, have other things on their mind, as everybody does at any time, can have accidents in cars. There was a great article in the New Yorker. I always love starting a sentence with those words, but there's a great article in New York. We're definitely not on Triple M anymore. No, that's right. We are not. Um, About, um, and and obviously having started with the sentence, that's all I need. I can't actually cite the the stat, but it was something about how many, how many, how many mistakes people make in the typical minute when they're driving in a car and they make, you know, an extraordinary amount of mistakes all the time, but you know, it's just that that bad confluence of a circumstance where your mistake can lead to something worse. Mm. That is the uh, that's where you have problems. But you know, everybody's always screwing up when they're when they're driving in all kinds of ways and not noticing things and having near misses and all that kind of stuff. So you know, I I, I do I do kind of wonder about things like this um, this website. Um, it's uh, it, uh, sort of yeah, it's funny, but it's also just it just seems a little bit like kind of um, I don't I don't want to throw around the, a word like bullying, but it just seems a little bit a little bit off to me that unfair to the people who get well, hit and get any, stuck. It could and, happen to anybody. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, so yeah. why is that? You know, oh, I see what that you mean. Funny. It's mm. like you know, let's have a let's put a website up for you know people who break their leg. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like it can happen to anybody. What do you make of the fact that there is so much fanfare and that it's reached, you know, somewhat iconic status? There's a, you know, a Twitter profile for the Montague Street Bridge. I think the bridge itself has actually retweeted my tweet this morning, which is very yeah. kind. Yeah. Um, you know, its own website as well. And, you know, people have written letters and poems to the bridge. What has led to this? People are freaks. <laughs> 
says Dr. Dave okay. Nichols, senior lecturer. <laughs> That's history for you. Associate <laughs> professor of urban planning at the University of Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I really, um, I, I guess it is, it's a kind of, it's a very local thing and people mm. love those kinds of local things. I mean, I, I also think, by the way, I think there's a little bit of, there's a, you know, whether you can talk about a kind of a Melbourne having a, an institution, institutional memory of this nature, Montague, the Montague area, that South Melbourne area, has been a stigmatised area for, for 100 and something years and, um, you know, has actually been the, the focus of, of campaigns to, you know, completely erase it or in, and what has happened, turn it into a, a fully industrial area. So it has a... There's a, there's a, a long history of, um, you know... Montague itself being seen as a as a bit of a dump, so you know it's probably partly you know a kind of well if you you know if you're going to go through a, that kind of bogan area you're going to get what, not that it's you know I mean I don't think people think of that in that way exactly necessarily anymore but it's it has that kind of out of the way badlands kind of feel to it as you know uh, anybody who lives in that area you know um, who does live in that area um, not I mean- many people. Yeah, I guess, look, it's, it's actually quite a traffic mm. area. Like, there's yeah. a lot of roads and road networks there, which is why I actually find it fascinating that we've got this super low bridge in an area where a lot of mm. cars go. Like, if it was, like, a, a an out-of-the-way spot, perhaps mm. it wouldn't be mm. well, so notorious. It's true. I mean, Dylan's question is correct. Why not raise, raise the bridge? It makes, it makes sense in a in a way. You know, maybe maybe we're giving Matthew Guy ideas for the, for the future. But... Um, the um, I mean, you wouldn't have to change too many letters to turn it into the Matthew Guy Bridge, by the way. But um, I wonder if it would backfire, though. I don't know if people would want it to change. Uh, good, that's a good point. We're going to lose that the is bridge. A, that is a very good point. But I, I think you know, from a historical point of view, and this isn't really an answer to anything in a in a growing modern twenty first century city. But you know, the bridge far predates the kind of traffic that mm. that is trying to get to the Westgate freeway, which I guess is what most of it is, um, or it's trying to get, get around through to Wurundjeri Way or something. I'm not, not, not 100% on top of that. But there's um, – so there's – you know, the, yeah, the traffic has certainly come in, in droves in the last few decades to – whereas from what I understand, in, um, until the Westgate Bridge was built in the 70s, it was, it was primarily an industrial area that, you know, nobody really thought much about and, and a little bit of, um, you know, in inverted commas, slum housing. Yeah, and it's it's totally different now. And I, I guess um, if we have given anyone any ideas for election promises, and the bridge does get addressed, then we'll have the historical society yeah. on this mm. show to talk about yeah. what we lose. Yeah. Um, very interesting, uh, Dave. Is there any more to say? I'm I'm a really cut up about Chris Bailey. Oh, mm. Mm. Which usually I'm not by celebrity deaths, but um, I yeah. find that that's yeah. uh, I think it's really yeah a really sad. Situation and um, uh, I mean, is it, I mean I don't know, I don't know his circumstances or, mm. or anything about yeah. the you know. But I was thinking a few weeks ago, you know, when's he going to do something new? Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. Anyway, so no, I don't have anything more to say about the Montague Street Bridge. Um, but nice to yeah. Hear I just heard about, but I just heard about that then. You know, in the last like the last half hour. Yeah, right. I discovered that, yeah. and I was uh, it's actually yeah, it is quite, sad. Uh, it's upsetting. And usually, I don't you know those things don't bother me too much. But uh, in this case, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we'll take care. Mm, And um, great to see you. And um, we'll catch you again next month um, after the holiday period. Um, Dave Nichols, you can find him over at the University of Melbourne, Senior Lecturer, Associate Professor, Urban Planning over there. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. 
At long last, the date is set. May 21 is the day we'll be heading to the ballot box for the federal election. To help us break through the spin and explore how this official campaign period might proceed, we're joined on the line by Associate Professor Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. She's also involved in a new special election podcast through the conversation called Below the Line. Andrea, great to have you on Triple R. Welcome. Good to be here. And it feels like we've been in campaign mode for a while, but today is, of course, the first official day of the election campaign proper. And I guess reflecting on some federal elections in in recent memory, what kind of campaign do you think this is likely to be? I think it's likely to get pretty dirty um, fairly quickly, Dylan. Both sides are claiming underdog status and they're both trying to set the agenda. And there's a thing that we look at in political science around issue ownership and that is the issues that are perceived by the public to be what a particular party does best. Uh, Now, perception and reality can be quite different here, so it's about the perception of it rather than, say, the evidence-based facts around this. For the coalition, the two issues that they are often regarded as being strongest at is the economy and um, national security, and for the Labor Party, it's seen as being um, things to do with health care, whether it's aged care or whether it's hospitals. And so they'll be trying to fight this election on those grounds and trying to show that the other side is not so strong on those areas. So I think this campaign's going to go negative very quickly. And that's because um, fear and concern are things that get the public's attention. So um, this is why political parties use them. But we can go into some of the drawbacks of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, Andrea, with regards to, well, we know that the media is important and the way it works and and reports in elections is important to a lot of voters and the information people receive. And we also know that politicians and political parties play the media cycle. I mean, what what, maybe um, give me a sense of how you think that the sort of press gallery and political journalists um, might operate given, given that situation. Yeah, so it gets a little complicated because the Australian um, circumstances have changed a little bit with early voting. In 2019, the criteria for um, being allowed to vote early changed and we saw a massive number of Australians going taking up that opportunity to vote early, 33%, a third. Uh, we'll have early voting again this time and that changes the dynamics of the campaign because it condenses it in many ways that... The um, the leaders are wanting to get them, and the parties are wanting to get the messages out before people make up their minds and rush to vote early, which is from the seventh of May. So I think um, we're going to see lots of repetition and messaging. The coalition's going to be talking up that they're good economic managers and they've already delivered. They'll take credit for the low unemployment rate, and we'll see Labor really trying to uh, put the emphasis on the lack of work that they perceive has been done in aged care, and that. As we've got an ageing population, this will be something that will um, pick up people's attention. So I think that's the main places we're going to see it and lots of targeting messaging on the digital platforms. To reach the younger voters, it'll be through Instagram and TikTok. To reach the um, middle-aged voters like myself, it's probably going to be um, lots of targeted messaging on Facebook and you'll see short little videos trying to get as much shareability as possible with these messages. 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, given that context and, and the broader sort of media ecosystem being, you know, very different nowadays than, than has it, been in, it has been in, in years and, and particularly decades past, I mean, what, what is the role, do you think, of, of political journalism, the traditional legacy media, political journalists kind of potentially, you know, joining the, the campaign bus and, and trying to subject uh, politicians to rigorous interviews? I mean, do you think it, it has the effect that, that we hope and, and would want it to in terms of holding power to account and, and giving voters a, a clear idea of, of just how some of the policies that are being put out there actually stack up? You said at the outset, Dylan, about how we've already had a sense of campaigning going on for some time, mm. and this is now the official campaign. And I think um, we know that to be true, that parties are in a permanent state of campaigning, and that fatigues the public. I don't know um, if you saw the coverage yesterday, but it was pretty tiresome watching, mm. um, uh, focusing on the Prime Minister's plane and then watching the car yeah. drive in. <laughs> uh, and I think... Your listeners, they've seen all that before. It's fairly tied way of reporting, but we're not seeing much innovation in terms of mainstream media in the way that they do report these things. So we will see them following around the politicians with their very staged media events. We'll see lots of high vis. We'll see animals being picked up. We saw a little bit of that yesterday with Anthony Albanese. We'll see babies being kissed. All those typical sort of campaign moments. But I think that's a real switch off for um, the public. They which is why I think the early voting will take off in this election. Um, that's I think the real contest is going to be in the digital media space where there'll be that very targeted messaging trying to reach the disengaged voters and also FM radio, which is where um, your tradies might be listening to the camp, uh, listening to the, their form of media and the politicians will try and meet them in their space. So watch for lots of FM radio, lots of targeting messaging on digital radio and then softer programs, um, whether it's reality TV, you'll see some appearances there, again, trying to reach those less engaged voters. Hey, we're FM Radio, and um, it's <laughs> Callie and Dylan and the Grapevine. Andrea Carson's with us, Associate Professor over at La Trobe, and talking about um, this election campaign that we're in, um, the role of journalism, political journalism, and uh, I guess we can maybe talk a little bit about trust here, Andrea, and uh, in you know recent elections we've seen a lot of fact-checking um, done, um, and I learned from you that around the world even there's, there's three 340 fact-checking outlets now operating, which is extraordinary. So it's a trend. I mean, how important or what role do you think fact-checking type approaches might play in this particular campaign coming up? Yeah, fact-checking is a burgeoning industry. It's a billion-dollar industry now, and it has a role to play. It's good at being able to call out misinformation and disinformation and debunking myths. The problem is we need to pre-bunk as well, and that is to do preventative behavioural to warn people in advance before we're actually showing them something that's been sh that has been um, there's evidence that it's false, and then telling them it's false. But really building up those media literacy and digital literacy skills so that, um, you know, it's by beware. The AEC is running a campaign called Stop and Consider, which is trying to do that educative space. They've teamed up with Facebook on this. Um, 
all the, there's no single way of being able to deal with the range of mis and disinformation, but it's always going to be a multi-pronged approach and having a combination of these media literacy campaigns and also the fact-checking, which is debunking when we do see some audacious claims being made is a really good, strong start. And the other way is, um, I guess, all of us have a responsibility when we see something that doesn't sound right, don't share it. Yeah. And I mean, you've done some really interesting recent research on on that as well. I mean, we don't have time to to go into it in in detail, but it suggests that in some cases, fact checking can actually at times reduce trust in news, even if, you know, the fact checking itself is about a a politician's claim that might be reported by a journalist rather than the journalist themselves saying, writing something or or saying something that is is untrue. So uh, how sophisticated are we or or what do we know about the the fact-checking kind of initiatives that are out there and and the broader effect they might be having on on trust in news and and trust in government and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think one of the things our research showed to me was that we're all really busy people and we get so much information every day that we don't because it's like a fire hydrant of information just coming in, streaming in at us constantly, uh, what we found was that when people see a false claim by a politician in a story, they tend to, it, it tends to um, colour the whole way that they see the story rather than being able to isolate that this is a, a political actor that's made the false claim. So... I don't know if we have the time to be more discerning. It Mm. would be preferable if we were, but we do get so much information. I think a shortcut to this is that fact-checkers need to make really clear on every single fact-check that they're not fact-checking the media story per se, they're fact-checking the political claim within the story and just reminding the public that this isn't a judgment about the story by X organisation. Yeah. Yeah, and you know one thing that's occurred to me um, as this this campaign's kicked off, Andrea, is there's you know the the with regards to the political reporters using tried and true or you know tried um, ways of reporting, politicians doing what they do, um, not so much variety, I guess, in in the way that we cover um, politicians in an election campaign, made me think that there's also not many new characters here, not many new politicians or, or, or people to focus on. And it makes, you know, in South Australia, we just saw a new Labor leader rise who I think a lot of people paid attention to because they didn't know him and he seemed to be sort of fresh and new in, in some ways. I mean, do you think that that's potentially fatiguing as well with this particular campaign that we've got really the similar the similar faces um, in in the ALP and the coalition parties um, contesting this particular election. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. Um, essentially, we've got two white males that are going to be going around in their suit and ties or um, sleeves rolled up, depending on the circumstances, and loose and tie um, if they're <laughs> off to different types of sites. But it's very male and very pale, um, this campaign, and... Um, the difference, though, perhaps is that Anthony Albanese is really going to be trying to use these six weeks for the public to get to know him better and what he stands for and what his values are. And already we're seeing the coalition mount this narrative around uh, stay the course, 
you know, don't risk things now. You don't know. It's better to have the devil you know rather than this unknown quantity. And so we will see um, Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party really trying to give us an insight into the character and the values of um, the potential next leader of the country. So... um, It'll be interesting to watch how that plays out with those that tension between um, staying the course and it's time for something new. Yeah, it's interesting too, thinking about the sort of horse race coverage of elections. And, you know, we've talked about Anthony Albanese and, of course, there's a lot of emphasis on, on the Prime Minister as well. But it feels like this election involves some sort of different dynamics with the, the, the climate candidates and, and independence in, you know, some regional seats really challenging the National Party as well. Do, so do you think there's, there's maybe more implications from heavily localised campaigns in this particular election than perhaps has been the case in others in recent memory? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that, Dylan. I think absolutely. One of the um, positives, I think, coming out with the Teal candidates uh, across the country, most of them in the lower house and most of them women, is it will broaden the issue agenda beyond just what the two major parties want to talk about. So we will see climate change being injected in there. We might see more about the gender gap in society more broadly being injected into that space. And they're going to have to engage with that because there's some really um, strong matchups with some of these independent candidates that might have a really good chance of getting in. I'm thinking um, Goldstein with Zoe Daniel, um, Monique Ryan instead of Kuyong. And even if they don't actually win the contest, they will be challenging the way, the things that we talk about and mm. setting the agenda, which brings a bit of plurality into the system, which I think is a, a really positive thing. The other thing I should say is that we talk about leaders, and I've been talking about leaders, but Australians by and large still vote based on their preference for their political party and their local candidate. It might Um, be the horse race in the way that it's presented every night on the news but we are more sophisticated than that when we do go to the ballot box. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just lastly, I mentioned right at the top that you are involved in a new podcast uh, through the conversation, um, you know, especially uh, exploring issues related to the election. It's called Below the Line. What have you, you got coming up and, and what's going to be your focus going forward? Oh, thank you, Dylan. Um, so I used to work with John Fain many years ago. I, he's dusted off the microphone. He's hosting this podcast. And it's with um, a team of political scientists, myself, Annika Goyer and Simon Jackman. And we'll be exploring using the expertise of those on the panel, looking at the swing towards the uh, uh, the trend towards minor parties and independence. Simon is an expert on polling and what the flaws have been in the past. Uh, and we'll be doing deeper dives into um, what's, where the, this campaign is going to be fought and lost. Yeah, it'll be really one. interesting to see if that swing happens this time round. It's been great speaking with you, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Andrea Carson, their Associate Professor at La Trobe University, talking all about the federal election campaign, the media's coverage and associated issues as well. And as you just heard, she is um, one of the, the panellists involved in a new podcast through the conversation called Below the Line. Triple. Ah. And last week, the Prime Minister dispatched Australian intelligence officials to the Solomon Islands to meet with Prime Minister Sagavare. And 
They reportedly went there to raise concerns over a potential security pact the Solomon's government was proposing with China's government. Um, the Solomon Islands was in the news last year too due to civil unrest depicted as pro versus anti-China. At that, that time, Australia dispatched police to the islands to help out. So what is happening with regards to the Australia-Solomon Islands relationship and with China and what might come from here? Uh, Dr Anouk Ride is a scientist with World Fish based in Solomon Islands and an affiliate researcher with the Australian National University. A really unique perspective to have Anouk with us and it's um, great to have you there. Anouk, good morning. Good morning. And, I mean, what's the, what's the feeling in the Solomons at the moment? Uh, are you also heading into the, the holiday period? I mean, that's kind of the vibe here in Melbourne, actually. <laughs> uh, well, we're actually still under COVID uh, restrictions over here. So there hasn't been um, any school or tertiary education this year. So we're all on a sort of working from home um, hiatus at the moment. So our schedule's really... It's not like a normal year where we have normal schedules for work and uh, education. Yeah, well, that's an interesting um, situation then for the kind of population to then be in the international spotlight too. Um, I mean, going by media reports, the Australian government didn't actually get what it wanted from sending intelligence officials to the Solomons. I mean, how from where you sit, how would you characterise the relationship that the Solomons government has at the moment with, with Australia's and, and China's governments? Um, well, I think sitting here in Honiara, um, you know, it's uh, good to look at things from a local's perspective as well. Um, so there's been a lot of opposition locally to the Solomon Islands-China Security Agreement, um, mostly from the NGOs, also the um, parliamentary opposition, um, women's groups. All of those have been sort of speaking out that they're very concerned, particularly about the way this uh, treaty or potential treaty was done. Um, no one really knew about it until it was leaked um, to the media from someone inside the government system. Um, and the feeling is from many quarters that it would have been good to have, you know, an open um, public dialogue and, and sort of consultations and discussions before this big decision was made. So there's still people talking about that, talking about um, opposition to the treaty um, and, uh, and thinking about, you know, what can happen next. Um, in relation to Australia's um, relation with, China, with uh, Solomons, Australia is obviously lobbying heavily for Solomon Islands to maybe amend or delay the agreement. Um, and uh, there's a mixture of things in there too, because we also have um, Australian Federal Police here um, who are, you know, um, supporting the local police with um, stopping any kind of, you know, violence that could happen around this issue. Um, and then there's also the question of the Australian aid program and, you know, whether that should change to adjust to, you know, this new scenario we're in. Yeah, there's lots to unpack there. And, I mean, in relation to the feeling on the ground and particularly, I guess, thinking about the unrest in the Solomon Islands, particularly last year in and around um, Honiara, what, what specifically are people concerned about in terms of the implications of this strategic partnership? Um, well, there's a couple of things. One is uh, that Solomon Islands is a very um, culturally diverse country. Um, so each province and each sort of island grouping can have their own language and their own way of doing things. Um, so one province in particular, Malaita province, has been very anti-relations um, with China. Um, and their, their political government at the provincial level um, or the state level, like we'd say in Australia, um, 
have been against this, you know, any sort of cooperation with China from the beginning. Um, so there's a bit of a political divide there and tensions there. Um, and then the second issue is, you know, the riots that happened in November last year. Um, that started with a peaceful protest against, um, you know, closer relations with China and a feeling that the, the prime minister wasn't listening to the people. Um, so, you know, whether that sort of unrest will come up again, that's uh, two things that are you know, on people's minds. I mean, I, I was really, I'm really interested in whether there's a sense that strategically this is where the Solomon Islands wants to be, like, or is it a good place for the Solomon Islands to be right now having these kinds of, of you know, well, not having an open dialogue with the, with the local population in, in, in um, the Solomons, but also where it's at with regards to its relationships with, with China and with Australia's government as well. Is this a good spot for the Solomons to be in? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like, obviously, the Prime Minister thinks he can balance the two and he's that Australia still remains a security partner, um, no matter they might sign this agreement with China. So, you know, in the in sort of, um, you know, the high, the Prime Minister, it should be um, possible to have relations with both. Um, but then there's a lot of concern from other Pacific Island countries that maybe, you know, for example, having armed forces in Solomon Islands um, could, you know, put the Pacific in this situation where they're drawn into conflicts that um, aren't really of their own making. Yeah, and, and that's something I, I learned from an article you co-authored for, for the University of Melbourne's online publication, Pursuit, was that, that the, Australia and China have been providing police in the Solomons with, with, with guns and, and with weapons and and I suppose I'm interested in your perspective on given the unrest that, that took place last year and the broader geopolitical context I suppose where we've had particularly in Australia members of the government um, you know attempting to use national security and, and Australia's relationship with China as an election issue as we approach an election in a few weeks time I mean is there a prospect of, of actually arming people in the Solomons from both Australia and, and, and China um, going to have further implications about the the likelihood of violence and, and resistance? Yeah, well, this is something I've been talking about with, um, you know, my colleagues at the Initiative for Peacebuilding at University of Melbourne. Um, you know, we study how conflicts develop and, develop and how peace processes develop. And neither of these things develop by accident, right? Um, the sort of media idea that wars sort of happen all of a sudden um, is not really true. You know, these war processes, they develop. And so, what we're seeing is like from all sides, China, Australia and Solomon's, this kind of war process is developing where Australia and China don't talk to each other. Their language is increasingly, um, you know, threatening and, and so forth. And then uh, Solomon Islands government is looking only to sort of solutions like arming, you know, the police rather than dealing with the underlying causes of riots and other unrest. Um, and then so to add on top of all of that, um, the fact that, you know, weapons may be, supplied potentially from a range of actors to Solomon Islands um, and knowing that the last, the civil war that was sort of from 1998 to 2003, a major escalating factor was that um, militant groups got police arms and once they got into the police arms, you know, um, then lethal violence and threats with guns and all of those sort of things have obviously increased. So um, what 
what my colleagues and I are saying from the um, initiative for peace building is that weapons at this point in this sort of, um, you know, process of escalation that we're in is really not helpful from either China or Australia. Um, and there really needs to be more of a focus on the Pacific way of things, which is usually negotiations to calm down conflicts rather than the imposition of force. Yeah, and it's interesting that you raise, you know, that recent, the, you know, relatively recent history there. I mean, what made the difference in that um, situation, uh, Anouk, when, um, you know, as you say, you know, weapons um, did filter into to different groups uh, in the Solomon Islands, you know, what made the difference and what brought about um, stability following that conflict? Yeah, well, one of the good things that Australia did do following that last Solomon Islands um, civil conflict was to disarm the country. And so they, the, the, when the first regional assistance mission came in, which was funded largely by Australia, um, what they basically did was had a, a de-armament process, getting militants from both sides of the conflict to give up arms. And that was one of the things that really um, helped to quell down the violence at the time. Now, since then, you know, we know that some arms, you know, they didn't get all of the arms in the country. And since then, there have been a few incidences, um, like in the last election, where there have been shootings and, um, you know, just isolated things popping up, where which would indicate there are some arms still around. Um, the other problem with Solomon has, it has many Pacific Island neighbours, and um, border security can be a big issue, you know, in terms of actually patrolling its huge border. Um, so we know that things do come into the country illegally um, and those things could potentially um, include arms. Um, one strange thing that sort of happened in the last few months was um, this shipment of replica arms <laughs> that came into an unofficial port um, in Solomon Islands and then it was sort of leaked and found out. Um, and so that created a lot of concern, you know, the idea that um, it's very easy for a logging ship to come in, to dock somewhere, to bring in, you know, goodness knows what, um, without any oversight by the authorities. Mm. Speaking with Dr Anouk Ride, a researcher with the Australian National University and with the Initiative for Peacebuilding over at the University of Melbourne, and we're talking about the Solomon Islands and I suppose specifically Australia's diplomatic uh, relationship with the Solomons as well, coming out of um, some, some recent comments um, that have been made, uh, particularly by Solomon's um, Island Prime Minister, Monase Sogavere. And, I mean, on that, uh, I was noted that, that um, he has talked about, you know, being quite insulted by the insinuation that the Solomons have been effectively co-opted by China and, and you know, the, the idea that they have had their agency removed or, or that they've somehow ceded sovereignty to China as a result of this, um, this agreement. And, I mean, obviously you, you mentioned that um, the Solomons is very diverse and so on, but, but what's the broader perception of Australia's role in the Solomons? Because we know, you know, Australia has the Pacific Step Up initiative and we've got a long history of, of engaging with um, with with, uh, you know, various countries around the region in, in different ways. And often the, the approach has been quite paternalistic. But broadly, how is Australia viewed over there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there's positive and negative views. Um, obviously, in some areas, Australian aid has really made a difference for key services um, and things that people actually benefit from. Um, but there was an interesting report done a few years ago by... Um, it was called The Listening Project, and it was basically just listening to stories that people tell about aid. Um, and one of the things that pointed out was that people are more critical and aware of the problems with aid um, than perhaps others imagine. And people, you know, talked about boomerang aid, for example, that, you know, 
it looks like aid coming to the country, but it's actually employing a bunch of Australians to do, you know, <laughs> a bunch of spend a bunch of money that a lot of it is actually spent in Australia or by Australian companies. Mm. Um, another sort of criticism that comes up, for example, is about family violence services. Um, family violence services here are really largely um, run on volunteers and very small funding. Um, but at the same time, like Australian NGOs or others will get, you know, big funding to do these big programs. So there can be a discrepancy between um, what's funded that actually has local benefits um, and where the bulk of the Australian aid funding goes to. Um, so when Prime Minister Sogavari talks about sovereignty, um, he's right in a way in that there is a feeling um, that Australia has maybe pushed its agenda on the Pacific rather than listening to the Pacific and responding to it. But also, um, another local academic, uh, Dr. Transfer Mangarao, he talked about the fact that, uh, ironically, when Prime Minister Sogavare, um, you know, if he signs this deal, he's also ceding some sovereignty to China. So it, it, two things can be true at the same time. One is that Australia does need to respect um, Solomon Islands' sovereignty and listen more rather than um, imposing, you know, uh, ideas on them. Uh, but it's also the case that, uh, you know, Governments can use the sovereignty argument to um, repress or, you know, go against the wishes of their people. So that's an interesting issue, this whole sovereignty issue. Yeah, and that idea of holding two truths at the same time is, is really apt one, I think, with the, you know, I mean, there's many issues that Australia and the Solomon Islands, you know, share and, and have in common. And, and the big one, I guess, is is climate impacts. And that's one of them, like, you know, I mean, your 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 area, um, uh, Anouk, working and considering the oceans, uh, I imagine that on one hand the Australian government and, and, and people are, you know, very active in that space, but then at the same time internationally in, in climate negotiations um, there's a lot of pressure from Pacific Island nations on Australia to, to step up and do more. And I, I wonder, like, are these other issues also playing in any way into this other stuff with with the um, militarization, I guess, in the Solomon Islands. Is it is it kind of all in one big um, melting pot? I guess. Yeah, the climate issue is really important. You know, like um, a lot of Pacific Island nations, you know, stand to lose a lot from climate change, um, and that's why they care about it, and it's why it's been an issue at regional and international meetings. Whereas the Australian response to climate issues um, has been a bit lacklustre. Um, but I think with this security issue, um, I wouldn't say climate change is a big factor in people's decision making because it is more about, um, you know, immediate conflict and unrest and how we respond to that and how uh, the government sort of gets um, assistance from different partners. Um, but I think in how it's being sort of viewed in because there's what happens in Solomons and that's what we've been talking about, but there's also like how it's perceived in the region. Um, and so definitely, you know, other Pacific Island countries um, are pointing out that, you know, if Australia wants to be their preferred partner of choice in all of this, um, they should also listen on climate change because that's a key issue for the region too. Um, but that's more of an issue that's been raised by people outside of the Solomons um, rather than within it, you know, where, uh, most people are more concerned about the immediate security um, issues. Yeah, fascinating. It's um, it's, it's been such a pleasure having you as part of the show, Anouk. We um, we learned so much, and and would hope to have you join sometime in the future. I really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks. It's been good to talk.
Absolutely. Dr. Anouk Ride, they're a researcher on aid development and, and conflict and, um, and a whole range of issues based over in the Solomon Islands. And you can read um, her recent co-authored article in the University of Melbourne's online publication called Pursuit, um, all about the, the sort of current status, I suppose, of the situation over in the Solomons and, and particularly Australia's relationship um, uh, with, with them as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.